have looked in detail <clears throat> at some portions and want to give you our gratitude and thanks for what we have learned. We bless you for the marks of the inspiration of this text, particularly for your omniscient mind, <clears throat> which has recorded long in advance the details that are known to you from the foundation of the world and have been revealed to your servants, the prophets. We receive them <clears throat> in these last days as they have come to us through the eschatological prophet, namely the one who has fulfilled the law, the prophets, and the writings, our dear Savior, the Lord Jesus. We continue to ask your blessing upon our final study this evening and direct our hearts to your throne, to your triumphant glory, and to your vindication through all of history. For Jesus' sake we ask it. Amen. Now I'm going to read the text tonight. <clears throat> so beginning at verse 36 of Daniel 11, <clears throat> I'm reading from the New American Standard. And then the king will do as he pleases, <clears throat> and he will exalt and magnify himself above every god, and will speak monstrous things against the god of gods, and he will prosper until the indignation is finished, for that which is decreed will be done. And he will show no regard for the gods of his fathers or for the desire of women, nor will he show regard for any other god, for he will magnify himself above them all. But instead, he will honor a god of fortresses, a god whom his fathers did not know. He will honor him with gold silver, costly stones, and treasures. And he will take action against the strongest of fortresses with the help of a foreign god. He will give great honor to those who acknowledge him, and he will cause them to rule over the many and will parcel out land for a price. And at the end time, the king of the south will collide with him and the king of the north will storm against him with chariots, with horsemen, and with many ships. And he will enter countries, overflow them, and pass through. He will also enter the beautiful land, and many countries will fall. But these will be rescued out of his hand, Edom, Moab, and the foremost of the sons of Ammon. Then he will stretch out his hand against other countries, and the land of Egypt will not escape. But he will gain control over the hidden treasures of gold and silver, and over all the precious things of Egypt. And Libyans and Ethiopians will follow at his heels. But rumors from the east and from the north will disturb him. And he will go forth with great wrath to destroy and annihilate many. And he will pitch the tents of his royal pavilion between the seas and the beautiful holy mountain. Yet he will come to his end and no one will help him. Now at that time, Michael, the great prince who stands guard over the sons of your people, will arise 
And there will be a time of distress, such as never occurred since there was a nation until that time. And at that time, your people, everyone who is found written in the book, will be rescued. And many of those who sleep in the dust of the ground will awake, these to everlasting life, but the others to disgrace and everlasting contempt. Now, as we examine this section of Daniel, we want to ask if there are any structural clues uh, to the meaning of the passage. Following our theme that is distinctive, particularly to this institution in which I teach, that structure is a key to interpretation, a key to hermeneutic, a key to understanding. Now, as you scan this passage, in the original Hebrew, you notice a typical Hebrew or Semitic device, namely a pattern of duplication. I placed those words in English translation on your opening handout so that you can follow from the vocabulary at least that which occurs in the New American Standard, the pattern of uh, apparent structural relationship. Now, as you look down those verses 36 to uh, 43, then 44 and 45, as you look down and you think a moment, you observe what you have there, uh, what type of structure? Do we call this? Or what pattern do you observe? Do you observe a sequential pattern as you look? Robert? Yeah, I can see a sequential. It's sequential. What 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 uh, sequential pattern do you notice? Well, he's they're talking about a king, and then he. No, from the vocabulary on the handout. <clears throat> from the vocabulary on the handout, what do you notice? As it goes further, it describes, it gives more details to what we found up previously. No, you're not seeing it. <clears throat> what do you see from the language, from the words on your handout? <clears throat> Mike? Repetition? What kind of repetition? Notice that a word or sometimes a phrase that occurs in one verse also occurs in the following verse. Verse 36, magnify above all. Verse 37, above all magnify. And there you have a chiasm. Notice that magnify is first in verse 36 and last in verse 37. That's because that's the way it occurs in the Hebrew. So there's a chiastic reversal in that duplication. Verse 37, the word God. Verse 38, the word God again. Verse 38, the word fortresses. The verse verse 39, the word fortresses again. Verse 39, the word many. Verse 40, the word many. Verse 40, the word enter. Verse 41, the word enter. Verse 41, the phrase his hand. Verse 42, the phrase his hand. 
I noted, notice also in verses 38 and 39, the sequence, God fortresses, 39 fortresses God. There's another reverse chiasm in the Hebrew structure. Verse 42, land or countries. Verse 43, land or countries. Verse 43 includes what concludes with a duplication, Egypt and Egypt. Now, verses 44 and 45 are a little bit different. <clears throat> verse 44 uh, talks about uh, going out to destroy, going forth to destroy. Verse 45 reverses that verb of going out to going in, <clears throat> the understanding that <clears throat> that uh, individual is going to be destroyed. So there we actually have at the conclusion of this section a reverse paradigm. That is, this individual goes out to destroy, but he goes in to be destroyed, a reverse sequence. Now, the question is, since we have this uh, pattern, what do we call this kind of structure? When we put a label on this. Well, I'm reading the handout. It would be crochet. crochet. And can you translate that for me? Um, what does the French what does the French word lay mean? The. the. Very good. And the word mo. Close? No? Part? Word. The word. It's actually plural. Okay, and crochet. Pattern. What's that? Pattern. She said pattern. Patterned. Close. Very good, Audrey. Close. Translate it into English. Well, yeah. we, we crochet. Exactly. It's the, same, it's the same word in English as it is in French. In fact, it's a French loan word in the English language. And what do you do when you crochet? What do you do when you crochet, Audrey? Do you crochet? No. Okay. It, what you My mother did, though. What did she do? She used the needle and hooked it around. Yes, you hook it, right? All right. So crochet is to hook a pattern or to hook threads or skeins, as the case may be. So what do we have here? We have hook words. Hook words. So at the end of one verse, a phrase or a word, and the beginning or somewhere in the next verse, the same word or the same phrase, and we have a kind of daisy chain pattern, don't we? We have a little kind of crochet pattern throughout this section where these phrases duplicate themselves, but they duplicate themselves so as to tie the whole unit together. It's crocheted or it's concatenated. Perhaps the easiest illustration of concatenation is a chain link fence. You know what a chain link fence is. It ties together. It holds together. All right. So this section in the Hebrew is tied together. It's holding together like a chain link fence, but it's based upon the replication or the duplication of, of uh, vocabulary. All right. So this French phrase, les mots crochet is a very uh, excellent explanation of what is happening. These words in this unit are crocheted together. They're kind of hooked together in a chain link or daisy chain uh, uh, paradigm. Now, since this structure is here, we ask the question, why? 
because the writer puts it there. Now, granted, the Holy Spirit has inspired it, but nonetheless, Daniel has written it this way. Why has he written it this way? Because he is concatenating or he is crocheting a literary pattern, a literary unit. When we find this type of structure, we find the, shall we say, integrity or the unity of a section of scripture. In this case, a pericope, a shall we say, large paragraph from verses 36 to 45 that has its own narrative or uh, verbal or vocabulary uh, artistry. Now, since that is the case, our next question is, does this literary artistry, namely this concatenation, this crochet device, Does this literary artistry suggest something more? Does it, in fact, suggest a narrative structure, a story structure? In other words, a story is being unfolded, is being told here in a pattern of crocheted words, concatenated vocabulary, sequential literary artistry. All right. These are the types of questions that we ask when we look at the original Hebrew text and realize that something is going on here which alerts us to the vocabulary of symmetry, duplication, repetition, and concatenation. Well, what is it that's going on? If it, in fact, is a literary masterpiece, yes, inspired by the Holy Spirit, if it is, in fact, a narrative unit, what is going on? Well, let's ponder the questions on the next section of the outline. If it is a narrative sequence, then the chief character of this sequence needs to be identified. And that chief character is named in verse 36. He is called the king. So the identity of the central figure in this story, the central character in this narrative is the king. And now having identified the king, or at least put a label on this person, we want to describe his character. We want to provide a characterization of this individual. Well, as we characterize him, what do we learn about him? What kind of a character is he? And what's the first thing that jumps out at you? Yes, but it's not just that he exalts and magnifies himself. He's above God. Above God? What does that suggest about him? That he's the devil. No, he's not. But what is he? The Antichrist. We'll hold that off. 
Let's identify him from what you have in the text. He's an atheist, isn't he? He's an atheist. He's a Christopher Hitchens. He's a Stephen Hawking. He's a Jean-Paul Sartre. He's your neighborhood atheist. He's the barroom unbeliever. I hope you're not frequenting those places, but nonetheless, uh, the village atheist, so to speak. All right, so uh, in verse 36 and 37, he is described in terms of his exaltation above all gods, even the God of gods, for he despises, rejects, and uh, uh, degrades any authority that those gods, even the gods of his fathers, may have over him. He denigrates them. All right, so we know that this king is atheistic. Now, what else do we know about him? Let's take a look at verse 43. There are a number of other things we could say, but let's take a look at verse 43 and what can we say about his character from that verse. He will gain control of treasures. Whose treasures? He's going to control treasures, yes. Egypt. Egypt's treasures. All right. Anyone else? Libya. Where is Libya? It's North Africa, and it's near it's near Egypt. Where? What direction? What, if I were in Cairo, what direction would I go to go to Libya? You would go west. I would go west. And how close to Egypt is Libya? Just another country away. Yes, it's right next door, isn't it? You ought to know about that these days, shouldn't you? Yes, you should, because of Gaddafi. Okay, all right, now, now, Libya is next door west, and what other country do we have here, Cheryl? You're doing so well, I'll keep you on the hot seat. Well, he mentions Nubians, and I... Nubians, and now, when I read the New American Standard, do any of you remember what I read? Ethiopians. Ethiopians, okay, you're saying Nubians. So where are the Nubians? In Ethiopia? I would suspect so. But is that the next country after Egypt? You went west of Egypt and got to Libya. If I go east of Egypt, what do I get? Uh, oh, you get um, the Mideast. You get uh, oh, um, uh, Saudi Arabia. You get well, you jumped a long way. Yes, that's true. You eventually get to Saudi Arabia. Well, well, well hey, we're but missing Iran. And you're, mi- you're, you're missing. You're missing what Hamas did yesterday, aren't you? Well, how about Israel? Not yet. Where do I go east of Egypt? Well, the Sinai Peninsula. Sinai Peninsula, and what did Hamas do yesterday? They got Egypt to open the border to where? Gaza Strip. Strip. Jack. Jack. Extremely, extremely important political maneuver. Okay? Very, very dangerous. All right, now, that's east of Egypt, all right? But you mentioned Nubians. Where are they? Your husband is helping you. Yeah, sure. Submit to your husband. Okay. <laughs> I love him. 
Yeah, south would be in Egypt. South. All right, now, if we go south of Egypt, we don't get the Nubia today, do we? We get Ethiopia. Do we? No, there's uh, Sudan. Yes, yes, very good. That's what we wanted to get to. All right, so this vocabulary, Ethiopia, but your version says Nubia and Sudan, these are all words that translate the Hebrew word Kush, the Kushites. Okay, The Kushites are black Africans, black East Africans, probably more Sudanese, more Nubian, for Sudan was called Nubia. But also Nubia extended down into Ethiopia, what we would call Ethiopia today. All right, so this individual is going to exercise control over Egypt. And notice the periphery, Libya on the west and Sudan on the south, perhaps all the way down into East uh, Central, East East uh, Africa in the Ethiopian region. All right, so he's going to control a great deal of wealth in this very wealth, wealthy and rich area of Africa. Now, the last thing I want to note is from verse 45. So he's going to be powerful, wealthy, you know, uh, individual. Verse 45 tells us uh, something more about his character. Oh, you have a question, Rob? It's not oil, but then... <laughs> no, 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 it's not oil. It's silver and gold and that type of thing. But, if, but, but it's, it's, it's a symbol of wealth. <clears throat> so, verse 45. What do we learn about him there? He's going to pinch his tent, but he will come to his end. What's the holy mountain? I want to guess something somewhere in in uh, in Israel. Somewhere. In Israel, yeah. Randy, I think you're Mount Zion, Mount Zion, or Jerusalem. All right, so he's going to pitch his tent between the seas and Mount Zion or Jerusalem. What seas? Mediterranean. Mediterranean Sea. That's correct. All right, and what's going to happen? Which means what? He's going to be killed. He's going to be killed or he's going to die there. All right. Now, that's a a kind of abbreviated characterization of this individual, atheistic, definitely a power broker. He's going to control a great part of the wealth of Africa. And he's going to invade Palestine and meet his end somewhere between Jerusalem and the Mediterranean Sea. Well, we haven't given identification for this king yet, so we want to ask, who was the king in verse 35? In fact, who was the king from chapter 11, verse 30, on to verse 35? Antiochus IV. Antiochus IV. Thanks, Benny. Antiochus IV, Epiphanes. 
what does epiphanies mean, Randy? Terry? Art? All right, Greek students. Pete? Appearance? Stronger than that. It, 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 you're, 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 you're in the right ballpark. Revelation. Manifest, yes. Re reveal, revealing what? <clears throat> Calling himself Epiphanes, but he put something in front of it. Theos Epiphanes. Meaning? God manifests. It's actually on his coins. You can go on the internet and you can actually see his coins, pictures of his coins. And uh, it's right there. <clears throat> he called himself God manifest. All right, now, is the king in verse 36, this God manifest, Antiochus, Antiochus the fourth epiphany? That is a $64,000 question. Well, let's go back to how we characterized <clears throat> This king, verse 36 following, and asked the following question. Was Antiochus IV an atheist? Did he reject the gods of his fathers? Did he reject all gods? No, he did not. In fact, he was devoted to what god? Zeus, Zeus Olympus. Because that's the altar that he erected in Jerusalem to desecrate, the abomination of desecration in 167 B.C. So Antiochus IV Epiphanes does not fit the portrait of our king here. And notice, he is simply called the king in verse 36. He is not called the king of the north. He has changed his vocabulary as he's moved from verses 30 to 35 to verses 36 and following. All right, second of all, what about Antiochus IV? Remember, this king in verse 43 is going to control the wealth of Egypt. What do you know about Antiochus IV and Egypt? He wasn't defeated by Egypt. He defeated Egypt, but... His second campaign in Egypt got him, got him to the doors of Alexandria, got him to the city of Alexandria. And what happened then? Pardon? What happened to him when he got to Egypt, to Alexandria the second time? Enter stage right. The Roman, oh, the Roman, oh, the Roman ambassador. Yes. What was his name? Caius Popilius Linus. And what did Popilius Linus do? He delivered a senatum consultum from the Roman Senate. And what did he do, Terry? He drew a circle around him and said, if you step out, you will do what I say before you step out. 
You will retreat and withdraw from Egypt completely. And you will tell me your answer before you step over the line. And Antiochus IV retreated from Egypt, withdrew from Egypt. So he did not exploit the wealth and the the, uh, goods of Egypt. He never returned after being banished by the Romans in 168 B.C., So that if he didn't return to Egypt, did he conquer Libya or control the wealth of Libya or the Sudan or Ethiopia or Nubia, whatever you want to call it, or Kush? No, he did not. So once again, Antiochus IV does not fit the portrait of the person being described in verse 43. Because none of those things were accomplished by him. What about verse 45? Where does this individual in verse 45 die? Maureen? In Israel. Israel. Where did Antiochus IV Epiphanes die? North. In Syria? No. No, north. North where? North of Israel. North of Israel. Syria? No, my memory doesn't serve me very well at this point. It's actually more east than it is north. North of Israel would be Syria. He does not die in his native country. He does not die in Syria or Seleucia. He dies in Persia in 164, 163 B.C. And he dies, as some said, from a fit of insanity and therefore was called Epimenes. Antiochus IV, the madman. Manic. Okay. <clears throat> Others said he died of consumption. All right now, all you readers of Dickens' novels, 19th century Jane Austen fans, what is consumption? Art, what is consumption? <laughs> Don't tell my daughter that. I know. <laughs> Well, that's too bad. If you haven't read Jane Eyre, you really are not, you know, Jane Eyre or Persuasion or Our Mutual Friend, which I think is Dickens, which is his last novel. I think it's his finest novel. But at any rate, uh, or Anthony Trollope or have you read any of the Barchester Chronicles? It's good good stuff. It's good, very good reading. All right. Now, anyway. In the 19th century, it's not just British novels, but it's also American novels, too. Uh, what what did they mean when they said consumption? Do you know, Pete? Tuberculosis. tuberculosis. Exactly right. So possible that Antiochus IV died of tuberculosis. But in any event, he did not die between the holy mountain and the sea. So once again, we have a characterization of this individual which does not fit Antiochus IV. Now, a couple of miscellaneous additions. He was attacked, he was not attacked, rather, by Egypt and Syria, verse 40, after his retreat from Egypt in 168 B.C. when the Romans forced him out. Notice verse 44 could suggest that uh, 
I'm, uh, I'm sorry. Uh, <clears throat> verse 40, 40, verse 40, I'm sorry. King of the South and the King of the North could be <clears throat> Syria and Egypt, or Egypt and Syria in sequence there. <clears throat> could mean that uh, Egypt and Syria attacked him. It wouldn't be very likely that his own nation would attack him. Uh, <clears throat> so it, that doesn't fit. But Egypt certainly did not attack him. He was the one that attacked Egypt in the beginning of the Sixth Syrian War in 170 B.C. and defeated them at Pelusium, and then moved on, <clears throat> moved back into Syria, and then came back in 168 to try to uh, unseat <clears throat> the triumvirate, the co, the three co-regents there <clears throat> in uh, Alexandria, and uh, was banished by the Romans. So that doesn't fit Antiochus the Fourth either. And in verse 41, you will notice that uh, he attacks Edom, Moab, and Ammon, but they are rescued out of his hand. We know of no historical record of Antiochus campaigning, Antiochus IV campaigning against these three nations, all of which are on the Transjordanian side of Palestine on the east bank. The west bank is the Golan Heights and so on in that area uh, down uh, towards Jerusalem. The east bank is uh, <clears throat> Moab, Edom, and Ammon. All right, we conclude then <clears throat> that this king in verses <clears throat> 40, 36 to 45 is not Antiochus the fourth Epiphanes. We have changed gears from verse 35 to verse 36. We have changed individuals from verse 35 to 36. And that's the reason we change vocabulary. He is only described as the king in verse 36, not the king of the north as he was from verses 30 on down. Well, any questions about that? We eliminate the person that we most recently were describing in this 11th chapter. He does not fit the character narrative of verses 36 to 45. Antiochus IV doesn't fill the bill. He does for the liberals. For the liberals cannot credit this passage as referring to anyone other than Antiochus IV because verse 35 does... Verse 36 must be uh, sequential. And, well, then how come there are so many mistakes in the text? Well, it doesn't bother the liberal to have a mistake in the Bible. You understand that? You see, the mistakes are there because the writer didn't really know. The writer was writing hundreds of years after the fact. And consequently, he got his historical data all messed up. He didn't have the smart... PhD that the liberals have. Okay, all right. So there are people that do believe this is Antiochus IV, but they are liberal higher critics, liberal fundamentalists. Fundamentalists of the left, not fundamentalists of the right. Yes, there is fundamentalism on the left, but of course it's only the fundamentalists on the right who ever gets smash mouth uh, about it. Okay, because, of course, that's a peculiar right of the left. They're allowed to say nasty things about fundamentalists of the right, but we're not allowed to label them that because if we do, that's hate speech or something else. 
but it's not hate speech for them to call us names. You understand? You understand the rules? All right. So, just so you understand the rules of what, what is PC. Okay. Now that we got that down, let's uh, ask the question number two. Is there a narrative sequence here? In other words, we said there is a storyline because of the concatenation of the vocabulary. There is a narrative unit here. Then what is the storyline? Well, first of all, this king is atheistic, arrogant, autocratic. His God is power. Notice verse 38. His God is the God of fortresses. He feeds upon power. Absolute power. Fortress power. Unbreakable power. Invulnerable power. So he assesses himself. Now, the second thing about this uh, autocratic arrogant, atheistic king is that he is attacked by the south and by the north, verse 40. Now, it is conceivable that that is Egypt and Syria. However, since we've changed gears in verse 36, we may not be talking about the same geographical regions. I have to put that in as a caveat because as he is changing personalities from verse 35 to 36, he may be changing geographical regions from verse 35 to 36. However, if we presume that the south and the north are as they have been before in this 11th chapter, Egypt and Syria, then this individual is going to be attacked by those two countries, which is another suggestion that he is not Syrian in his own right. He is not Seleucid in his own right. He will, when attacked, overrun certain undisclosed countries. Then he will enter Palestine and kill many. He will attack Egypt, Libya, and the Sudan, verse 43. They will bow to him. Notice they will follow at his heels or at his footsteps. But he will then hear reports from the east and the north, verse 44 and will set out on a march to destroy many. He will pitch his tent in Palestine, and there he will die with none to help him, verse 45. So we actually have a kind of sequence, a narrative sequence of military campaigns that this atheistic, arrogant, autocratic king embarks upon. However, great distress will come upon the earth. The worst distress ever experienced, verse verse 1 of chapter 12. But those written in the book will be saved, they will be rescued, and the resurrection of the dead, righteous and wicked... You cannot squeeze a thousand years between those two phrases. The resurrection of the dead, righteous and wicked, will occur coterminously. 
All right, now the narrative moves from a fairly unattractive personality, arrogant, atheistic, autocratic personality, to a militaristic campaign, which involves geography that can be identified with parts of Africa and the Near East, but climaxes in a great distress and the resurrection of the righteous and the wicked. This is the broad narrative outline, the broad narrative sequence, the broad narrative literary artistry of our inspired prophetic writer, namely Daniel, as he presents the characterization of this individual. Why the sequence? From the appearance of the king in verse 36 of chapter 11, and the juxtaposition of the great distress in the resurrection of chapter 12. Why? Why this narrative sequence? The narrative paradigm buttressed by the literary or narrative artistry, the concatenation of the crochet or hook words, okay, is driving us to a particular sequence, a particular narrative structural sequence. Why? What is it? That is being, shall we say, summed up here. It is the cataclysm of two critical, two crisis, two climactic crises events. It's the appearance of this individual juxtaposed with the climactic resurrection of the righteous and the wicked. These sequences, these cataclysmic and critical sequences, these cataclysmic and critical narrative sequences, this is a story, this is coming to pass, this is going to happen. These are consummately eschatological, consummate, climactically, finally eschatological, following one upon another. The appearance of this king followed by the eschatological resurrection. The resurrection of the righteous and wicked dead. All right, now notice what we've come to. Through a careful analysis of the literary character of this unit of scripture, through its narrative sequence, through its characterization devices, through its juxtaposition, notice what we have come to. We have come to the consummation of the ages. We have come to the last day, to the end time in human history. We have come to the day of resurrection, eschatological resurrection, consummate eschatological resurrection. Who then is this king? Maureen? He is the Antichrist. Because he is the the preparation for that climactic consummation, that 
final and ultimate resurrection. Now, as we look at the macro structure of the book of Daniel, we are helped in the identification which Maureen has given us, namely that this individual in Daniel 11, 36 to 45 is the Antichrist. We are helped by the parallel symmetries which we find in this wonderful book. If you notice in your outline, in the handout, the macrostructure, that is the large overstructure of the book, follows a repetitive or sequential duplication, what we might call a recapitulation, but it also does so with an exegetical addition. This is very important. The structure is here in order to show us what is being described. In chapter 2, we have the initial dream of Nebuchadnezzar and the description of the five monarchies. The four monarchies that arise after Babylon and the crushing of those four by the fifth monarchy that supernatural and eternal kingdom of God. As we noted when we discussed chapter 2, that is a prophetic projection of Christ's inaugural advent, his first coming, his birth in Bethlehem of Judea, and the coming of the eternal kingdom of God the gospel of the kingdom which he preaches. His first sermon, repent for the kingdom of heaven, is at hand. It is the gospel of the kingdom that Jesus of Nazareth preaches to Israel. Now, in chapter 7, we met the Antichrist, particularly in verses 8, 20, and 25. So we have met this figure that we've also met here in chapter 11 tonight before. But following our introduction to the Antichrist in Daniel 7, we meet Antiochus IV Epiphanes in Daniel 8. Then, in the 90 weeks, the prophecy of Daniel 9, we have the prediction of Christ's crucifixion. He will put an an end, he will be cut off, even though he puts an end to sacrifice and offering. Now in chapter 11, verses 31 to 35, last week we met Antiochus IV Epiphanes. Once again, this symmetry that we've noted in the book of Daniel. Here, the duplication of Antiochus IV in Daniel 8 and in Daniel 11. Which leaves... Daniel 11, 36 to 45, once again, symmetrically structured or arranged so as to confirm our answer to who is the king in verse 36. Fill in the blank. Maureen? The Antichrist. All right. Notice the structural parallel. Notice the structural symmetry. Notice the structural recapitulation. And following that description of the Antichrist is Christ's consummate advent, implied 
obviously projected from Daniel 7 on, verses 13 and 14, the coming of the Son of Man on the clouds of heaven, and the eternal resurrection, chapter 12, verse 2. This sequence is very nicely patterned. It is very nicely laid out and unfolded. It contains within itself a, a, a duplication, a symmetrical reaffirmation, but with a unique difference. Notice the recapitulation outline, which is at the end of your handout. The first time that we met the four kingdoms in chapter 2, they were followed by the appearance of the fifth monarchy. The second time we met the four kingdoms in Daniel 7, Daniel's vision, in contrast to Nebuchadnezzar's dream, we found the four kingdoms followed by the fifth monarchy and the Antichrist, the exegetical addition, that is, the expansion of the original paradigm from Nebuchadnezzar's dream. Notice what is happening here. The prophetic paradigm is expanding. This is what we would expect with Semitic idiom, with Hebrew narrative structure, with Hebrew poetic or literary structure. We would expect to get a little more information when we get a symmetrical duplication or a symmetrical recapitulation. So in chapter 7, we get an additional feature, which we did not have in chapter 2. We meet the Antichrist. He also is part of this paradigm of the four followed by the fifth monarchy sequence. He's caught up in it in some way. Well, in chapter 8, we meet the three kingdoms. That is Persia, Greece, and Rome plus Antiochus IV Epiphanes, followed by the first advent of Christ, emphasized in chapter 9 in the prophecy of the 70 weeks. Then in chapter 11, we once again meet the three kingdoms, Persia, Greece, and Rome, and Antiochus IV Epiphanes once again, as we did in chapter 8, followed by the Antichrist now at the end of chapter 11 and the eternal resurrection. Notice the symmetrical recapitulation, but in chapter 11 we get an exegetical addition. We learn more about this sequence of the three kingdoms and Antiochus IV Epiphanes. And in chapter 11 he's followed by the Antichrist, even as he was in chapter 7. So not only do we get this recapitulatory exegetical symmetry, we get this large macro symmetry, which is building upon the paradigm of the four plus fifth monarchy, four kingdoms plus the fifth, or the three kingdoms plus the fifth, or the four plus the fifth plus the Antichrist plus the consummation. We are being given a microcosm of the whole history of redemption from Daniel to the end of the world. That's what God is revealing through his servant Daniel. All right, now, uh, that brings us to 
the kind of structural, narrative, literary, recapitulatory, symmetrical uh, elements here, <clears throat> I think it is clear against the liberals that we are not dealing with Antiochus IV Epiphanes in verse 36 and following. We are dealing with a very mysterious figure who is yet to appear in human history and whose appearance will be followed by the final day of world history, the day of uh, eschatological consummation and resurrection. Do you have any questions about this? Robert? Well, okay. Uh, Does that mean then... uh, we take literally these portions which talk about Egypt uh, and uh, going for the wealth of Egypt, uh, uh, all these things in terms of his description uh, that Daniel gives us that we don't see in the New Testament are these things that uh, that we should identify then for the future. I don't think so. <clears throat> uh, I, I think what we have here is paradigmatic imagery. <laughs> and as this is symbolic of certain aspects of the character of this individual and the character of the world in which he moves. I want to say a little bit more about that in the second hour. But the geography here in verses 36 to 45 is quite interesting. The geography of the interface or the crisscross between the nations and Israel. You see, the nations, this figure passing back and forth through the land of Palestine, as Palestine has been the keystone of the nations ever since the days of Abraham. And what did God say to Abraham? That through him, all the nations of the world will be blessed. And those who refuse this message from this crisscross of the crossroads of this nation, this keystone to the history of redemption, those who reject this stand antichrist, stand opposed to the blessing of Abraham that comes to the nations as well as the Jews. So that the centrality of the geography of the Holy Mountain here is not necessarily to be literally identified with Palestine. It may be identified more with the consummatory movement of the history of redemption, in which the ultimate harvest of Jew and Gentile alike are gathered into the eschatological holy mountain. That is, the mountain of Isaiah chapter 2. The mountain unto which the nations flow. And there is no mountain on earth which could hold the nations. Not Mount Zion, not Mount Jerusalem, not Mount anywhere in Israel or the Himalayas or the Alps or the Rockies or anywhere else. That mountain is the mountain of the heavenly Mount Zion. So I will not press the geographical language here. Uh, I think we are dealing 
uh, once again, as uh, we are dealing with this individual in apocalyptic symbolism, I do not deny the, shall we say, challenge of this vocabulary, but nonetheless, I see no reason to uh, uh, look uh, uh, with our uh, demonstrably false prophet Harold Camping for the second or third time for uh, something happening in Palestine days hence. Jason? Uh, I was wondering about verse 40 uh, where it says that the king of the south will engage him in the battle, the king of the north as well, and then talks about chariots and cavalry and fleets and ships. How does that fit along? Yeah, Yeah, it, it it would fit my paradigm that this is, you know, the imagery of warfare. And obviously in 2011, he's not going to come with chariots and horses. So he's going to come with, you know, a war machine, whatever that happens to be. So that also raises the question of whether the north and the south here are Egypt and Seleucia as it was in verses 35 and preceding. <clears throat> you see, these are the challenges of making this a decision based upon the symmetry of the whole book, uh, identifying this figure with the Antichrist of chapter 8, or chapter 7, rather. Uh, there we also have imagery, which is symbolic, and consequently uh, we, we're going to maintain the same uh, hermeneutical paradigm here. You again? No, I'm sorry, Robert. Uh, Art. Art. I saw your hand before I saw his for the second time. So, uh, I, you know, at the risk of asking the same question again, it was already asked, but do you think, I mean, even though the uh, these words in this passage are, anyway, do you, do you think that these words will identify uh, the events as they unfold in the future? I, I think that we will know, if we are here when this occurs, we will know a lot more about the symbolic import of this language than we do now. Uh, yet how it is going to, shall we say, literally unfold, that I'm not sure I can uh, you know, project, nor would I want to project. That's what's my kind of uh, slight on Harold Camping, but nonetheless... We'll be able to say, oh, this is pretty clear that what's happening now is what's been predicted by this passage. Yeah, the righteous may be, the wicked will not. They will be deceived by him. They will be deceived by him. They won't even think about this text. The righteous, those who may be left, may see the connection. May see the connection. He may be even able to deceive the very elect, were that possible. This will be a close call. Will there be many, very many elect left? Will the Son of Man find faith when he returns? I'm not sure there are not going to be too many left. And it's not because they're all going to be raptured out, Harold Camping notwithstanding. Robert, back to you. Well, obviously we weren't the elect, right? Because we got left behind. Well, so much for that left behind. Theo. All right, go ahead. <laughs> good, good point. Yeah, but you heard what he said Monday night, Pete. Well, he's changed it to October 24th. Yeah, yeah he, he said his, his calculations were off. <laughs> For the third time. Go ahead. Well, I, I, I like what this what you presented here in terms of the structure. I, I really see that in terms of the whole book and everything. 
But here's the thing I'm thinking about is, you know, we went through chapter 11, and there's accurate details in terms of world history and kings, and you helped us see all that. And then we come to this last part, and it's using similar language, but now we're saying, well, wait a minute, though, this isn't, uh, we're not approaching these verses like we approached the rest of chapter 11. And it's the same in chapter 8. When we come to that uh, meticulous detail that deals with uh, Persia falling to, falling to Greece and so on, we've got a lot of detail about Alexander the Great in that 8th chapter and the division of his empire into four horns and so on. When we come to the Antichrist in chapter eight, I'm, I'm sorry, in chapter seven, we don't we don't have that same detail. We once again move into a realm of apocalyptic symbolism. So, uh, you know, I'm forced by my symmetry to follow the same hermeneutical parallel. Now, I acknowledge that you know you're pressing me into a corner, uh, and and I feel that. You know, I mean, I feel that I deal with this text. You know, I, I'm I'm betwixt and between sometimes. I want it to be more literal than I think it should be. But that's the same problem I have with the book of Revelation, isn't it? I mean, what are we going to do with the imagery in the book of Revelation? We're going to absolutely literalize it if we're good. We've got all kinds of problems if we're going to do that. So <clears throat> Revelation is apocalyptic. Daniel is apocalyptic. <clears throat> Ezekiel is apocalyptic. Zechariah is apocalyptic. We use a different hermeneutic when we come to that kind of literature. And therefore, I'm appealing to that pattern and to what I think is here in the structure of the book to justify what I'm doing here. Though I am, I'll admit, I'll honestly admit, I'm a little bit uncomfortable with it. Because once upon a time, I was trying to do what Harold Camping was doing to do too. I was trying to figure it all out for myself. I finally gave up in despair. Pete, go ahead. You've been patient. Um, another factor to get you out of your corner is that... Help me, help me. Go ahead. We have to switch from the Old Testament to the New Testament. And in the Old Testament, everything is under Moses as the mediator and therefore is, is spoken in terms of Mosaic language. And therefore, it, 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 it deals with the nations and and Israel as a nation, and all of that that's there. When that is transferred to the New Covenant, all the symbolisms change. Uh, in the Old Testament, we're told that the promise given to Abraham was the land. In Romans 4, uh, 11, or 13, I forget which, uh, we're told it's the whole earth. And so we have the, uh, the prediction and the fulfillment and I think you have to see this uh, language in terms of its concreteness, in terms of that which is the promise, and uh, the uh, the more non-literal the uh, uh, language in terms of the fulfillment. So you understand why we keep him on faculty to keep me out of corners. <laughs> Thank you very much, Pete. Very very well described. This is a shift in the type of vocabulary. Excellent. Observation. Thanks. Any other questions or comments? Oh, yes, back to you, Art. You did have your hand up. Yeah, I was wondering if you could just clarify something that you just said. I mean, you said that something to the effect that uh, you, you, you have in your life struggled with something, and even now you're not completely comfortable with it. What is it that you're not comfortable with? That I've nailed the interpretation of this passage completely. Okay, but I can say that about any passage. All right, but nonetheless... You know, this one has some mysteries in it. 
Okay, and in the second hour, I want to talk about some other mysteries. Okay, so uh, take your break and come back in a few minutes, and uh, we'll take a look at a couple of other things. All right, in unfolding the story of the four monarchies of Daniel 2 and Daniel 7, we have unfolded the history of tyranny. The history of imperious, tyrannical rule and absolute power. From the collapse of the terror-based Assyrian Empire to the fall of imperial gladiator games-loving Rome. Both empires reveling in human butchery as entertainment. These tyrannical empires were driven by lust, the lust for conquest, the lust for domination, the lust for subjugation and prostration, the lust for manipulation and seduction, the lust for blood. Simply put, powerful persons together with their religious cohorts, their military henchmen, their political thugs, aggressively marched, pillaged, genuflected, schemed, ruled, and governed for the purpose of controlling human beings, controlling human souls weaker than their tyrannical might, controlling human lives which they could dominate with threats, with intimidation, with abuse, with conquest, with death. This lust to control lives, peoples, nations, economies, armies, the gods and their sacred precincts, omens, priests and priestesses, this lust to control is the foundation of tyranny. The exercise of power over others is a vested self-interest. It is the vested interest of the one using others for purposes beneficial to the user, the controller, the dominator, the manipulator, the ruler, the godlike one with absolute power. This power is fundamentally imperious, tyrannical, abusive, either verbally or physically or both. It is contemptuous of the lesser, the inferior rubes and peons, even as it is degrading of their dignity and integrity.
the psychology of tyranny. May I suggest the pathology of tyranny has been crafted not only in the biblical portraits of Egypt's hard-hearted pharaoh, Judea's Herod the Great Baby Butcher, and Babylon's apocalyptic whore. It has also been captured in Machiavelli's The Prince, Karl Marx's Communist Manifesto, Adolf Hitler's Mein Kampf, Mao Zedong's Little Red Book of Quotations from Chairman Mao, Alexander Solzhenitsyn's First Circle with its brooding portrait of the insidious Joseph Stalin. To mention only a few of the portraits of tyrants as legion, as the brand itself. Human history reveals a veritable menagerie of tyrants and tyranny, autocratic despots, egomaniacal dictators, shrinkers and shrivelers of individual liberty and personal dignity, all in the name of the elevation of the ego leader and his elite party. All is subsumed to the ego, the personality of the user, the dominator who uses others for personal gain. We have a small museum of these iron-fisted totalitarians in the prophecies of Daniel. In fact, a summary of the historical manifestation of such spiraling and progressive tyranny, such that one views all tyranny in all human history subsumed in the four monarchies of Daniel chapter 2 and Daniel chapter 7. The succession of dictatorial rulers and states is not so much an incremental calculus of burgeoning tyranny as a progressive unfolding of the tyrannical principle. The progressive unfolding of the tyrannical principle come to its judgment under the crushing supernatural power of the fifth monarchy. And that victory, having been of the spirit, not of the flesh, the unrepentant tyrannical principle will continue to replicate and recapitulate itself in all subsequent human history until the same fifth monarchy will crush and defeat it in the end time in the flesh as in the spirit. Such a climactic crisis will necessitate a consummate clash between the quintessential principle of tyrannical wickedness and the prince of eudaimonistic righteousness. If we move in history 
from the victory of the fifth monarchy over the four. And that a manifest victory of the servant of the Lord and his servant kingdom over the brutal despotism of the principalities, powers, and kingdoms of this evil age, a victory of the spirit over the flesh, then we shall also see the final battle, the eschatological conflict, the concomitant clash between the full expression of this deified tyranny in a son of man, son of Satan, son of perdition, versus the son of man, son of God, son of heaven, and that a victory of the flesh over the spirit. Daniel's prophecies project both. The victory in the spirit at the incarnation of the Son of God and the victory in the flesh at the coming again in glory of the Son of Man. The victory of the kingdom of God is recorded in Daniel's prophecies, the inaugural victory present in the coming of the kingdom in spirit and in truth, and the consummate victory to come in the kingdom of the resurrected righteous flesh and the dominion over the kingdom of the resurrected wicked flesh. We are dealing with the arena of both the spirit and the flesh in their incremental and sequential manifestation eschatologically. This final conflict is cosmic. It is not regional. It is not partial. It is not local, but ecumenical, universal, global. Nor is this final conflict one between a myriad succession of petty tyrants and the kingdom of God. Rather, this final conflict is a once and for all clash between the son of perdition, the man of lawlessness, and the son of glory, the man of righteousness. This is an eschatological clash between Christ and Antichrist, between God and Satan, between the eschatological ally of the prince of darkness and the eschatological prince of light. The seed of Adam in its archetypical explosion will display its full genotype, son of rebellion, son of the adversary, a human replication of Satan incarnate were such a thing possible, a man-child who will call himself God, being an anti-God, a counter-God, a contra-God, knowing and promoting evil and depravity while hating and despising all good and righteousness, all this 
in its eschatological manifestation. This is the last gasp. This is the last gasp of the enemy of God to replicate in human history once and for all what he attempted in heaven, namely to conquer God and his son, to destroy the righteousness of heaven and turn heaven into a hell, turn it into his kingdom, his domain, his power base, his tyranny, this arch-fiend, this arch-demon, this arch-apostate, this arch-tyrant. And since he was rebuffed in heaven and himself cast down to hell, from whence sewer of perdition he issued forth to assault the kingdom of God once more in the wilderness of Judea, attempted to use the very Son of God as his lackey, only to be vanquished to the pit of hell once more, bound there in chains by the stronger man. Even so, in this consummate eschatological clash with the kingdom of heaven once and for all, Satan will venture forth from the bowels of hell and enlist the seed of Adam, sons of Adam and daughters of Eve. He will enlist the seed of Adam. He will enlist the consummate Antichrist, Counterchrist, Counterchrist, opponent of Christ, enlist him to roar throughout the whole earth, the whole globe, the whole inhabited cosmos, to roar against the Lion of Judah, to elevate himself to deity against the deity of the Son of God, to unleash all manner of vile wickedness upon the earth against the sweet and precious righteousness of God in Christ, to seduce and prostitute the world to apostasy, to lies, to deception, to lying wonders, to the pleasures, the lusts, the vile passions of wickedness against the resurrection and prostration of the elect in the book, to fidelity, to truth, to integrity, to bona fide miracles, to the holy pleasures, the sacred desires, the born-again passions of love and righteousness. This last gasp of Satan and his man-child, his covenant child in the black arts of his anti-eschatological kingdom with his antichrist, his anti-God. This will bring the final clash, the final crisis in the arena of human history. Time and space will behold, will be the stage of the final conflict. Christ and Antichrist, God and Satan, good and evil, tyranny and liberty, despotism and servanthood, life and death, 
heaven and hell, election and reprobation, glorification and perdition, anomia and theonomia, anomia and Christonomia, anomia and pneumatonomia. He will be slain, this man of sin, this Antichrist. He will be slain with the breath of the mouth of God, and he will be cast into the lake of fire where he will be tormented by God's just and righteous wrath forever and ever and ever. And his followers, his worshipers, his tyrannical imitators and whoremongers will be imprisoned with him in everlasting flame and darkness. Satan and his Antichrist and his anti-kingdom and his anti-heaven. What a hellish horror that will be. The eternal crushing weight of the tyranny of unremitting evil and abuse and dominance and power and subjugation and rage and hatred of heaven. Dante, Dante, Dante was not even close. If Daniel 11, 36 to 45 provides the revelation of this belligerence crystallized in a geopolitical and militaristic figure, then 2 Thessalonians 2, 3 to 12 supplements, recapitulates, epexegetically completes the revelation of this personality as a cosmic religious figure. We have explored the characterization of this Antichrist from Daniel's prophetic portrait. Let us read Paul's narrative characterization, 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, beginning at verse 3. Let no one in any way deceive you, for it will not come unless the apostasy comes first, And the man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of destruction, who opposes and exalts himself above every so-called God or object of worship, that he takes his seat in the temple of God, displaying himself as being God. Do you not remember that while I was still with you, I was telling you these things, and you know what restrains him now, so that in his time he may be revealed? For the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. Only he who now restrains will do so until he is taken out of the way. And then that lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord will slay with the breath of his mouth and bring to an end by the appearance of his coming. That is, the one whose coming is in accord with the activity of Satan, with all power and signs and false wonders, and with all the deception of wickedness for those who perish because they do not receive the love of the truth so as to be saved. And for this reason, God will send upon them a deluding influence so that they might believe what is false 
in order that they may all be judged who did not believe the truth but took pleasure in wickedness. But we should always give thanks to God for you, brethren, loved by the Lord, because God has chosen you from the beginning for salvation through sanctification by the Spirit and faith in the truth. Paul's characterization of the man of sin or the man of lawlessness in verse 3 borrows from the figure in Daniel's portrait. Paul's Antichrist makes great boasts of braggadocio, as does Paul's anti, Daniel's Antichrist in Daniel 7, verses 8, 11, and 20. Paul's Antichrist makes blasphemous claims displaying himself as God, verse 4, language which reflects the characterization of Daniel's Antichrist in chapter 11, verse 36. Paul's description of the man of sin, or man of lawlessness, anomia in the Greek, is exegetically expanded by naming him a son of perdition, or a son of damnation, or a child of hell. In both passages, we are assured that the Antichrist, son of perdition, seed of the servant, cannot frustrate the predestinating purpose of God, noted in Daniel 12:1, where those resurrected in righteousness are found written in the book of rescue, while the apostle declares that God had chosen the beloved in the Lord Jesus for salvation from the beginning, 2 Thessalonians 2.13. Whom Daniel reveals as a global militarist, Paul further characterizes as a false self-deified apostate. We close our short series on the book of Daniel thus. Daniel brings this rolling, unfolding clash of the four monarchies of wickedness with the fifth monarchy of righteousness to two successive denouements. First, a provisional victory of the fifth monarchy in the era of the fourth monarchy, the era of the Roman Empire, and thus Christ's first advent. Second, a consummate victory of the fifth monarchy, especially manifest in its principal scion, the messianic son of man, Lord of the glory clouds of heaven, righteous savior prince, a consummate victory of the king of the fifth monarchy over his arch enemy at the end of days, when he will slay the satanic culmination of the four kingdoms with the breath of his mouth and shut them up in the lake of fire forever and ever, never again to deceive the nations or to tyrannize and oppress the elect of God. Historical recapitulation issues in eschatological consummation once and for all. 
the provisional semi-eschatological now balanced by the consummate eschatological not yet. All this projected via the recapitulatory symmetry of the macrostructure of Daniel 2 through 12. Amen. Even so, Lord Jesus, come quickly. Any questions or comments? Cheryl? Do you, so do you think the Antichrist is alive today? No, I do not. There is a spirit of Antichrist, which the Apostle John makes clear, and in fact, Paul is referring to the fact that he's being restrained even now. That is, the spirit of Antichrist is, but it's going to manifest, this spirit is going to manifest itself in a singularly vicious personality at the end of time. No, sorry, he's not Henry Kissinger or not any of the other proposals that have been waffled since the 70s and on. So will he rule for seven years? I don't think so. What do you think? I think he's going to rule for a good long while. That's my impression of the impact that he has. Remember, he's a global figure. He's not a local, regional monarch or king or ruler. He's going to conquer the whole world. He's going to, he's going to seduce the whole earth. It's going to take a while to do that, even in this cyber age, where everybody's seduced by YouTube and everything else. Robert? The uh, four kingdoms in Daniel that are described before the Antichrist kingdom, are there things about those kingdoms that we can learn about the Antichrist as well, or Antichrist, you know, characteristics of those kingdoms? They're tyrannical. They're driven by bloodlust, by power to subjugate, to place under the thumb people who are less weaker and inferior to their own elite personalities in their estimation. There are all kinds of uh, analyses of tyrants that you can examine from world history, from Machiavelli's The Prince, as I pointed out, from Mein Kampf. Uh, you know, you can begin to look at what is the personality of a tyrannical mind like Nebuchadnezzar's, Cyrus the Great, Alexander the Great, Darius the Thirst. What is what is the uh, <coughs> Ptolemy, any of the Ptolemies of the Seleucids. What is the mind of a tyrant who marches over uh, peoples, over countries, over cities, over nations, and kills people, puts them to death, simply for the sake of conquering, dominating, looting, raping, murdering? What kind of a personality is this? And yet, every one of those four monarchies feasted, majored in that kind of totalitarian idolatry. Antiochus IV calls himself a god. Alexander the Great was regarded as a god as soon as he got into Persia. He never said no, thank you. Augustus Caesar called it, was, uh, was uh, deified uh, Julius Caesar, and therefore every Roman emperor on his death was called a god. Domitian, in fact, claimed to take that title. He called himself Dominus during his lifetime. Called himself Lord. 
It's this, it's this psychology of tyranny that is underneath this. That is the ideology of the four monarchies. It is a recapitulatory ideology. It replicates itself all down through human history. That's the reason that Daniel is not moving beyond the second, the first coming of Christ until the final consummate. Everything is in principle present in those four monarchies to go all through human history until the second coming. You don't need to try to figure out whether there's going to be a millennium, a rapture, whatever, a seven and a half year tribulation, three and a half year tribulation or whatever. You don't have to figure it out. It's all been projected by Daniel in terms of this macro structure. Because otherwise, you just, well, this is what happened in the days of Babylon. Uh, but it doesn't have anything to do with us if you just look at it as history. But when you see it in light of the Antichrist and, and the foreshadowing of some of those things that's going on, you, you've got God's people in captivity when the book of Daniel starts. Uh, each one of these kingdoms was affecting Israel, uh, God's people. Uh, one after the other and each time they're in captivity and they're having to deal with a different nation, a different rebellion uh, different characteristics but yet all unified in that anti-Christian and anti-Christ figure and that tyrannical principle is still lodged against the church, against the people of God in our own age it is still fundamentally abusive manipulatory, wants to dominate wants to subdue, crush but the gates of hell will not prevail against the church. They will not. On that, we stake our faith and our hope. We will not avoid these wars and rumors of wars. We will not avoid this tyrannical militaristic principle premise, this tyrannical governmental principle as it unfolds itself into our age and beyond. It is the same principle that Daniel described that will carry the carry through the interadventual age, the age between the first and second advent of Christ. And that's how we see the book of Daniel. Blessings on your summer. In September, we will resume our series on the book of Hebrews, starting with Melchizedek in chapter 7 in the Thursday after Labor Day. You are all welcome to return. Adios. Thank you.